All my life, he has been faithful. Amen? Amen. One of the great things that happens when the body of Christ comes together in corporate worship is we go through a worship song together. It's not just you watch, it's you participate. It's that you're, you're worshiping, and when you get to certain lyrics, every person has a different vantage point of where it is God has been faithful to them. There's a, there's a journey that you walk through. When we give, guess what? It's a journey that we walk through together. And did you all know that whenever we study the Word of God, it is a journey that we take together. So it's not just I preach and you passively listen. It is that as I preach, you're engaging with God through the Word and saying, God, speak to me through this. There needs to be an anticipation that comes when we gather together with the people of God, an anticipation that God is going to speak, that God is going to move, that the body of Christ is going to take another step of faith together, that we get to come together and celebrate what God has done. It, it is a journey that we get a chance to take together. So I am glad that we get a chance to take the journey together. Amen? Amen. All right, so we pick up where we left off from this last week. We are in Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, and we're studying the Apostle Paul's argument for justification by faith. And to make sure that there's clarity on the front side of this, justification by faith is the doctrine that states that a person is made right with God not on the basis of merit, not on the basis of keeping the law, not on the basis of good works, but on the basis of faith in God. It's justification by faith. Now, the Apostle Paul needed to address that particular topic for that particular group because there was a group that had infiltrated the early church, and they were teaching people that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus plus adherence or obedience to the Mosaic law. And in so doing, what they were basically stating is Jesus' sacrifice is insufficient to make you right with God. It has to be Jesus plus something else. But when that something else comes through, it is now something else that you can do. In other words, it is a works-based righteousness. The moment it is Jesus plus anything, you're no longer in the gospel. It is Christ, Christ always, in Christ alone. That is where the gospel is centered. So until this point, the Apostle Paul has shown that particular group called the Judaizers that they were in error on a theological level, a practical level, a rational level, as well as a personal level. And now he takes another step on that and he exposes their error on a historical level and he does so using their own hero. Their hero was Abraham. For the Judaizers, Abraham was the man. He, he's the patriarch. He was the father of the faith. He was the example, the standard by which they all were trying to adhere to. So what the Apostle Paul does is he says, I'm going to show you that your own hero was one of the greatest examples of someone who has been justified by faith. Not obedience to the law, but rather justified by faith. Now, this is no small issue. The doctrine of justification is not a minor issue. 
In fact, justification by faith is one of the great theological pillars of Christianity. And for those who look back on a historical level, it is this particular statement, this idea of justification by faith, that was a major dividing point with Martin Luther from where the Protestants branched off of Catholicism. It is this idea that a person is made right with God by faith and virtue in what God has done for them, not what we are doing for God. So this doesn't get any bigger in the Christian faith than understanding how a person is made right with God. Now, if you might be thinking to yourself, I already believe that. This really has no relevance for me. This last week, I gave six reasons why this is something we all need to study because it enhances our walk with God. Here they are again very quickly. Understanding justification by faith, it equips us to share the gospel more effectively. If you want to be better equipped to share the good news with somebody else, this is a conversation you want to be involved in. Second, it draws us back to the heart of the gospel. It's so easy to branch off into subtopics and branch off into meaningless arguments and branch off into denominational positions. And before you know it, you get away from the heart of the gospel. You get away from Jesus. You get away from what the big issue is all about. Number three, it expands our theological understanding of salvation. We need to know more than a quick, like gospel outline. We need to understand the redemptive process. We need to understand where God found us, the problem that brought division, what Jesus did on our behalf, and how it is a person can be made right with God. If we understand that, you can go through and start a gospel conversation with anyone from any point in their life. One of the things I love about watching baptism on a Sunday morning is often the pastor who's baptizing shares a little bit of the story of how that person came to faith in Christ. I don't know if you all noticed over the last couple of weeks, but somebody was having a conversation about history, and all of a sudden it led into the gospel. Somebody else was getting disciplined, and it led into the gospel. In other words, if you understand the gospel, you can have that conversation. That is a part of understanding the redemptive process. Also, emphasizes faith after salvation. Number five, it shows us the intent of the law. And then number six, it shows how Abraham trusted God with specific promises, hard decisions, prolonged periods of waiting, confusing times, and human impossibilities. So put all of that together. If a believer wants to grow in their faith, if we want to walk in God's freedom, if we want to enjoy the depths of God's freedom, if we want to understand the beauty of salvation, if we want to become better equipped to share the gospel, if we want to live in a way that better glorifies God, one of the first major steps is understanding justification by faith. All that being said, I invite you, if you're not already there, look with me, Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Tonight is part two of the topic, It's Always Been Faith. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who were sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. 
So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you again as we ask week after week, may your spirit guide us in truth. God, may we not deflect this truth for someone else, but Lord, may we meet with you. May there be an anticipation and expectation that we hear from you in your word as we gather together. God, we need your spirit to guide us in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So here is a quick review over what's going on in that particular text. Verses 6 through 9 are a part of a much larger section of Scripture. In fact, this is a part of a section that is verses 6 through 14. And then verses 6 through 14 are a part of a larger group of questions, three questions that are being asked in in chapters 3 as well as in chapter 4. Now, the first of those questions was, how was Abraham made right with God? That's what we find in verses 6 through 14. The second question was, what is the true purpose of the law? That's in verses 15 through 25. And then the third question is, who are the real heirs of promise? And that's found over in chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Now, since Abraham is being referenced throughout this section, it's important that we go back and see the stories that are being referenced there. All we get is a quote, and all it is is a reminder But for us, we need to go back and say, all right, what happened to that original text and why is it that Paul was using that as a part of his illustration for helping people understand justification by faith? So this last week, we started four major moments in Abraham's life. I covered two of those last week. Here they are again very quickly. Moment number one was God's promise to Abram. This is found over in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This is the first interaction that you find in your Bible of God and Abram. In the conversation, God comes to him and he promises him the land, the seed, and the blessing. And with those promises comes a list of instructions. He was to leave his home. He was to leave his land. He was to leave his family and friends. And he was to go to the place that God was telling him to go. Now, God doesn't tell him where. God doesn't tell him what to pack. God doesn't tell him how long he's going to be there. He doesn't tell him if it's a good land or a bad land. He doesn't tell him if there's enemies in the land or if it's a place that he can roam free. He doesn't say any of that. But the very next thing that you find is it says, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. That's faith. Abram received a word from God. Abram believed a word from God. And Abram acted on that word from God. Receive, believe, act. Same way we are to apply scripture today. That is the scene that is being referenced in Galatians chapter 3 verse 8 when it says, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now here was moment number two. God promises Abram a son. This is found in Genesis 15 verses 1 through 6. Here's what it says starting in 15 verse 1 and following. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Now, pause there. Ten years have passed since the first moment to the second moment. Ten years is a really long time to wait on a promise from God. Ten years is a long time to be away from your family and your friends. Ten years is a long time to be in a land 
that you don't know, is it still hostile? Is it okay? Am, am I all right? Did I hear from God? How many of you know when you are trusting God for a promise and you don't see it quickly, how many times do we start to question, did I really hear him? Is that, did, was that for me? Or did I make it up in my head? Ten, ten, ten years is a long time to play the did I really hear from God argument in your head. And yet in this text, he's asking that. He's wondering that. We, we know that because of what it says in the next group of verses. But here's how God addressed Abram in that moment. And by the way, God knows what you need to hear when you need to hear it. So when you're questioning things, your God is big enough. He can handle those questions. So here's what God says, verses 5 and 6. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be, verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now in Genesis 15, 6, that verse, that is what the Apostle Paul is quoting in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6 when he says, he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. The, the statement means that the righteousness of God was credited to Abram's account when he believed what God had for him. The same is true of us today. When a person believes in what God has done for us through Christ, the righteousness of God is credited to our accounts. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Now, we also shared on the back half of what took place, verses 9 through 18, that God entered this covenant relationship with Abram. And it was a unique covenant in the fact that God walked it alone. God took full responsibility for the covenant. It was not, you hold up one side and I will hold up the other. It was God saying, I'm holding up both. It, it's dependent upon God. 2,000 years after that, God entered another covenant with humanity. Once again, God walked it alone. That's the covenant that takes place at Calvary. Christ walked the path to Calvary alone. Our salvation is not contingent upon us doing something to hold up our side. Our salvation is 100% contingent upon the grace and the mercy and the extravagant love of a sovereign God. That's where we ended this last week. I told you all, if you came back, you're going to get in for a treat tonight. So moment number three is where the treat begins. God's covenant sign is circumcision. Genesis chapter 17. Come on now. Hey, by the way, when you preach verse by verse through a book of the Bible, you can't skip over the uncomfortable stuff. So you come back, and by the way, God put it there for a reason. Lord willing, you're going to find out why this is a part of it tonight. So if you would like, feel free, go back over to Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. This is the story that is now being referenced by the Apostle Paul. So 24 years now have passed from the time that God first gave the promise, the land, the seed, and the blessing to Abram to this particular point. 24 years have now passed. Abram is still without a son. Abram is still waiting. By the way, if 10 years was a long time to play, did I hear from God? 24 years is a really long time to play that same game. 
So 24 years have passed and there's still no child. No one would blame Abram at this point if he were to say, I can't do it anymore. It's too hard to keep believing and walking. I, I'm just going to do my own thing. Like you, you could completely understand how he could be at that particular point. And yet, not only does he not do that, he doubles down on his faith and belief in what God is going to do. So verse, or chapter 17, verse number one, listen to what it says. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. That word before, it means in the face of or face to face or in front of. Let that sink in. What he's saying in this opening statement is I am calling you to a deep level of relationship. I'm calling you to walk face to face with me. No hiding, no running, no walking away. I'm calling you into this deeper level of relationship. Verse number two, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. The last covenant was in Genesis 15. It was about the land. This covenant is now about the seed as well as the blessing. The seed refers to Abraham's descendants, and the blessing is going to be that from Abraham's descendants, all the world will be blessed through the birth of Messiah, which will come through his descendants. Now, verse number three, it says, Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God speaks to Abraham now as though it's a done deal. Did you see it? I have made you. That's past tense. That's not it's going to come. It's I've made you. When God gives you a promise, go ahead and be okay with it. It's coming. God keeps his word. We might not know the timing. We might not know the circumstances. We might not understand the journey or the path that is before us. But when God gives us a promise, you can hold on to that promise. An old-time preacher used to say, if God tells you to sign the moon, you, you are by the moon, you sign the lease, he can make the payments. When God gives you a promise, hold on to it. Now, in this, notice what it says after that. Verse number 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. All right. Circumcision was an outward symbol of a covenant relationship. It signified cutting away the sin that was inherent within humanity that had passed from one generation to the next. You find that mentioned Deuteronomy chapter 10, Jeremiah chapter 4, as well as Colossians chapter 2. In the weeks to come, we're going to show how it is that there are some similarities as well as there's some major differences between circumcision for God's people, Old Testament, and baptism for God's covenant people, New Testament. 
If we're not careful, we see outward sign, covenant relationship, and immediately say, that's the same as baptism. No, it's not. There's similarities, but here's the difference. There is a way in which God was working with his covenant people in the Old Testament that was unique at that moment. There is a way that God is working with his covenant people in the New Testament that is unique in this moment. There are similarities, but it's not the same thing, and we're going to pull that out in the weeks to come. So in Genesis 17, 23, we find Abraham's response to this new covenant sign. It says, Then Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all the servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin here, in the very same day as God said it to him. What? Hey, Abraham, you sure you don't want to pray on that at least a night or so? Do you know how much faith it takes to step out on that type of a promise from God? Amen. Oh, yeah. Based on this text, I am convinced that either Abraham was the greatest leader that the world had ever seen to that point, or he was the greatest salesperson who has ever been on this planet. How exactly do you breach that conversation with the men who live in your house? Hey, guys, gather around. I got a little something I want to share with you. Ha Think about it on the other side of the equation. Think about living in that house. And Abraham tells you this, and you're sitting here thinking, hold on there, Abraham. Hold on, brother. God told you what? Are you sure you heard from God? Hey, Abraham, I don't know how they did it back where you came from, but, bro, we don't do that over here. That's going to be a hard no on my side. I mean, think, don't just read a text and run through it. Think about what's happening in that moment. Think about the faith that is happening in that moment. Now, all kidding aside, the purpose and the timing of circumcision are both relevant to what's happening in Galatians 3. And that is the Judaizers reversed the relationship of circumcision and salvation. Circumcision was a mark, not the means of salvation. God established circumcision as a physical sign to identify his people and to separate them from the pagan world that was around them. But God gave them circumcision years after Abram has already been declared righteous by God. That's why those moments are important that we line them up in the proper history of things. Now, later on in Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul is going to point out that the true sons of Abraham are not those of the physical circumcision, but rather those who believe God in faith. Now, I want you to fast forward just a moment in the story. In Genesis 21, Isaac, the promised child, is finally born. Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. 25 years passed from the time the promise was given until the time that the promise was fulfilled in Abraham's life. 
Now, after waiting 25 years on this promised child, it says in Genesis chapter 22 that God now put Abraham to the test. I would have thought 25 years of waiting was a test enough. Apparently, I was incorrect. So now, moment number four, and this is huge. God tests Abraham's faith. This is Genesis 22, 1 through 18. Now, here's your quick recap of what's taking place. Listen to how, like, all of these statements sequentially begin to line up. Genesis 12, God promised the land, the seed, and the blessing. Abraham obeyed God and acted in faith. Then in Genesis 15, God promised Abram a son and said his descendants will be like the stars of the sky. Abram believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Then in Genesis 17, God promised a son again and told Abram that the sign of covenant was circumcision. Abraham believed, and he acted in obedience that very day. Three major moments, three major steps of faith. Now we find ourselves in one of the craziest stories that you come into in Scripture. Genesis 22, we have the story of Abraham offering Isaac as a sacrifice to God. Here's what it says. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Verse 2, he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Stop. Did you see what just happened? God is preparing you for what he has prepared for you. This is not the first time that God told Abraham, get up and go here, and I'll tell you when you get there. The first time he was told to get up and go, and the promise was a blessing. The second time he said, get up and go, and the promise is a sacrifice. If you don't obey the first time, you will not be prepared for the second time. This is now coming full circle at this point. So it is believed, he says, go to the mountain of Moriah. It is believed that the Temple Mount, as well as Calvary, are both in the mountains of Moriah. Think of the symbolism of that for just a moment. The years of sacrifices that have been offered on those mountains. Think about the fact that that is that same general place where sacrifice after sacrifice, and eventually the ultimate sacrifice in Christ was going to come on that same mountain. Verse number three, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and he rose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Now after waiting 25 years for the promised child, Abraham gets up and he starts preparing for this sacrifice. We find nothing in this text Nothing in this text that says he argued with God about this. Why is he so compliant? Why not put up some type of art? I mean, it's not like God said, go pick up a bucket of chicken when you come home from work. He said, take your son, your promised child you were waiting on for 25 years, take him to a mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him there to me. Verse 4. 
On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Now in this moment, it seems as though Abraham is expecting God to do something major. Either God is going to change his mind, or God is going to stop him, or God is going to bring him back from the dead. All we know is Abraham said, myself and the boy are going to go, and we are going to come back. There is an expectation that they're going to return. Verse number 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Let's stop there for just a moment. A number of years ago, I had an opportunity to go with a group of rabbis to Israel. And by the way, touring Israel with a group of rabbis is a fascinating tour. We got back, and our conversations on the tour bus had been extremely strong. It was like there were parts that they had never seen that were Christian landmarks, and there was parts that we had not seen being more of a Jewish landmark. But we'd get back on the bus, and then we'd start talking about what we just experienced and how it fit into each other's belief system. And we got back and we spent the next couple of years, a couple of the rabbis wanted to get together each week and study scripture together. We would study an Old Testament passage and a New Testament passage. And we were studying this exact text. And we got to this particular point talking about the fact that Abraham had now experienced this incredible moment. And listen to what happened. He said, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And here's what one of the rabbis said. In the Midrash, which is the Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, that phrase, laid it on Isaac, is also translated, laying a cross on his back. The rabbi pointed that out. And they looked at me sheepishly because they knew where my mind just went on that. Hey, they might not have been able to preach where that was going, Oh, we can. That is a foreshadowing of what is going to be taking place with Jesus going to Calvary here. So from there, we find in verse number 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walk together. When you've been walking with God and God has been providing and you get to the next point where you need God to provide, there is now a trust-faith relationship that has been built between you and your God. And in that moment, that dad got to speak encouragement and faith back to his son. Now, in this, notice the fact that Abraham basically said, God will provide. He didn't know what the next five steps on the journey were going to be, but he knew what the next step was supposed to be. God had told him what he was supposed to go and to do. In this, Abraham is basically saying, we're going to go, we're going to do this, and God will provide. Notice again how he's in that same sequence. Promise, problem, provision. He's right back in the same sequence. Once again, he's needing God to provide what he has now been promised. 
So when we have walked by faith and God provides, listen to this, our tendency is to hold tightly onto that provision and to breathe a sigh of relief that it is now over. Think of it. God promised you something, and you were holding on, holding on, holding on. Now you have it. And it's like, praise the Lord, I passed the test. I'm good. It's done. That is incorrect. Notice in the text, the son was there. The promise was there. As a dad, that natural instinct, especially after waiting 25 years, is I'm going to protect my son. That is that, that instinct that needs to be, I'm going to protect, I'm going to provide, I'm going to preside over my family. That, that's where that dad is going to be going. And in this moment, God's saying, I want you to give him back to me. This entire process has been one of learning to trust God and know God and live by faith. So listen to this. The ultimate goal of trusting God is not getting what we want. Listen, the ultimate goal is God getting us. When God gets us, that's where your freedom is at. Freedom is waking up to the reality that Christ is all we need. Freedom is waking up and realizing that you're not the one holding on to God. He's the one who's holding on to you. Freedom is learning that we are to trust the provider more than the provision itself. For 25 years, he has waited on this son. God gave him the son. His natural instinct is hold tight to the son. But listen, the fullness of the faith journey is not over until Abraham is willing to trust God with the son that has now been promised. That last step if it does not happen, here's the natural thing that will occur. Abraham will try to be Isaac's ultimate provider, ultimate protector, and ultimate leader. The moment we tighten our grip on God's provision is the moment we're now bound again. If God promised and he provided the same God who provided is the same one who can protect and he's the same one who can make sure that that thing, that person, that promise has been cared for. If we're not careful, we become little deities in that moment and say, now that it's mine, it's up to me to protect it. No, it's not. The moment you think it's up to you, watch the way God begins to pry your fingers back open so that our hands stay open before God. When your hands are open, God can take out what he desires and you say, may your will be done. When your hand is open, God can put in what he desires and you say, may your will be done. The moment we tighten our grip is the moment we're finding ourselves in trouble. Back into the story. Abraham and Isaac get to the right place. Abraham builds the altar. He binds Isaac. He places him on the altar. He draws back the knife in order to take his life, and the Lord stopped him. The angel of the Lord tells him he passed the test because he did not withhold his son. In that moment, Abraham sees a ram caught in the thicket, offers the ram as a sacrifice, and listen, and cause that place the Lord will provide. It was not until studying this text again this last week that this part jumped out to me. 
It was not the place of Isaac's birth that was called the Lord will provide. It was the place of Abraham's release that was called the Lord will provide. You would have thought when the promised child came, they said, we're going to mark this place the Lord has provided. And yet it's in this moment, it's when there has been a freedom of giving the son back that now there is that full cycle that has come. The pattern of Abraham's life is a pattern of faith. We find that when God promised he and his barren wife a child, he believed. When 25 years passed, he believed. When he, it was a physical impossibility, he believed. When God told him that circumcision was the sign of covenant, he believed. When God told him to offer his son as a sacrifice, he believed. Each time, his belief was accompanied by obedience. How do you know if you really believe God? You'll obey him. That's the next step. So is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul brings up Abraham as an example of saying, this is what it looks like, not only to walk by faith, this is what it looks like to be justified by faith. Not by works, but by trusting in what God has promised and what God has done for us. So let me pause here for just a moment. It can be easy when you hear stories like this, to somehow draw the correlation that every time he walked through a challenge to faith, he must have handled it right. That would be incorrect. Does anybody remember the Hagar story? That was not a shining moment of faith. That was a moment of Abraham saying, it's been too long, God, I will hook you up and help you out on this. And that turned out really, really bad. Do you remember another moment whenever Abraham was traveling and he was concerned about whether or not the kings would kill him to take his wife and he lied about that? Again, not a shining moment of faith. But here's the wonderful thing about Abraham's life. You see the great moments and you see the struggles. And that's why it's so powerful. That's us. It's not that God is looking for perfection. He knows that we're not going to respond right each time, but you can watch this gracious journey of God drawing him along in faith to what that next step is going to be. So here's my question for you tonight. What is that crazy promise that God has given to you? And I'm, I'm, I'm going to encourage you to say crazy, crazy promise that you can go back and see in the word. What's that promise that he's given to you? that it seems like you've been waiting so long on it that you're about ready to give up. And you are struggling with it. And you're saying, God, I don't know what to think. Did I, did I not hear you right? Was that not for me? Was that not for this situation? God, do I simply need to release this? Have I been on the wrong track the whole time? What is that crazy moment right now that God's saying, nope, I still gave you that promise and I am still training and teaching you in these moments. And you're about ready to walk away. All I could say is don't give up on the promises of God. Amen. Keep trusting. Keep walking. When you get frustrated, lean into him even more. When you get crazy frustrated, share it with some other believers around you. 
when you don't know what the next step is going to be, that's okay because where you are right now, when the next step comes, you got a God who is sovereign enough to let you know what that next step is going to be. Until that comes, you stay and you wait and you trust and you worship. And when the next piece comes, you take the next step from there. Our journey of faith is hard. It doesn't always end in a way that we look back and say, I understand exactly why God did that. Sometimes you just have to say on this side of eternity, I'm just going to have to keep trusting that his ways are higher than my ways, his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. But I'm going to trust him anyway. I'm going to ask you if you would to bow with me for prayer. His heads are bowed. I just want to give people an opportunity tonight to be able to take a moment in response and in prayer, just pray about where that struggle might be personally. It might be that you've been in a place where either you've been holding on to this for so long that you don't know what the next step is, or maybe it's like you see a part going forward and you get excited and then all of a sudden it goes the other way and just your heart sinks again. It almost feels like a roller coaster. I cannot encourage you enough to keep your hands open and to trust that the one who was promised is the one who will provide, is the one who is ultimately going to protect. He's the only one who's going to be able to handle those deep issues of life. Heavenly Father, we ask tonight as we close out that, God, you would meet in a special way with people this evening as they're walking through different struggles that come with faith. God, help them to be able to clearly see what their next step is going to be. God, will thank you for what you do there. In Jesus' name, amen.